This episode of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future, is brought to you by the Innovative Leadership Institute. What worked yesterday won't work today, and what works today won't work tomorrow. We help executive teams prepare for accelerated uncertainty by creating the foresight needed to stay competitive, elevating leaders to thrive, and transforming organizations to become future-ready. If you'd like to discuss how we can help prepare your organization for tomorrow, please visit InnovativeLeadership.com and click Contact Us. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders become future ready. In the aftermath of the Great Resignation, we know that what worked before COVID and before the resignation is no longer working. In today's show, we'll be looking at the human energy crisis at work with Joshua Friedman, Master Certified Coach and CEO and co-founder of Six Seconds, the global community for EQ. Joshua, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. What is a human energy crisis? Well, Kathleen Hogan, the chief people officer at Microsoft, recently wrote an article with this title pointing out that we have a real mess right now. And I don't think most organizational leaders are confronting that. The economic uncertainty, we're at the brink of a very serious global economic mess. We have uh, last year, the U.S. Surgeon General released an incredibly strong advisory on workplace mental health and well-being. Just last week, the Workforce Institute at UKG, this massive cloud computing company, released a survey across 10 countries saying that workplaces have a bigger effect on people's mental well-being than their spouses and their therapists, and that 71% of people are reporting a negative impact of work on their stress and well-being. So as a leader, if you believe that people are what actually generate performance, we have a very serious set of issues we've got to unravel, and it's not business as usual. This creates also an opportunity for us as business leaders to differentiate our performance, frankly. If we are not doing it, it's impacting our bottom line. We just published a new business case for emotional intelligence where we looked at this data. We found that organizations that prioritize emotional intelligence are 22 times as likely to be high-performing. Looking at a variety of data from Gallup and others, Gallup's recent workplace engagement report found engagement globally and in the United States at the lowest level in 20 years. That's costing, just in the U.S. alone, somewhere between $1 and $2 trillion a year. And I believe I read in some of your research that EQ is going down. So help us unpack just the high level. What is EQ and why is it going down? EQ stands for emotional quotient, the measure of emotional intelligence. And I don't know why it's going down, but I lead the world's largest study on emotional intelligence. We've randomized data from 139 countries, and we've been seeing it go up and down, up and down since 2011. And then from 2019 to 2020, it took a massive hit. And I suspect we all know there were some events in the world in 2020 that probably affected people's ability to connect and collaborate and understand what's happening in the world. Stress seems to be a major impact on our ability to use our emotions intelligently. So emotional intelligence in simple terms is being smarter with feelings. And if we think that people are what drive performance, we need to understand that emotions are what drive people. 
emotional intelligence is the skill set that leaders need in order to harness that pipeline. You as a leader, grow your emotional intelligence. You're going to do better with engaging and supporting, motivating, understanding, influencing people, connecting across differences, solving problems. And the research shows that increases employee engagement, increases performance, increases the effect on customers, and ultimately your profitability. Let's go back for a second. You said 19 to 20 declined. Is it still declining? You said it we're at a 20-year low. Yeah. So the state-of-the-heart research that I publish is going to be coming out later this year. We released a little teaser graph in the new business case for emotional intelligence showing that, yes, unfortunately, emotional intelligence continued to decline from 20 to 21 to 22. Now, what you're going to see when that report comes out is that decline is not across the board. So from 19 to 20, it was really everyone. And it's continued to go down, starting to plateau, and we're seeing some groups recovering first. I'll give you a sneak preview to say, globally, women are recovering faster than men. That's curious because women were so hard hit in many instances, picking up more childcare responsibilities. Is it because they dropped so much that they're bouncing back a little quicker or are we just more resilient? I wish I knew, but I will say that if I was looking for senior leaders right now, I might be looking to hire more (laughs) women in my organization. So this is a significant differential, statistically significant. Yeah. Wow. So I want to go back to what you said earlier, Maureen, about the differentiator, because there's another finding that we have is that global emotional intelligence levels are declining, but the impact of emotional intelligence is increasing. So in 2022, we released our vitality research, which we do every two years, looking at what made teams more effective in in the past three years. We found that over the last five years, these drivers, relational drivers, basically, things like trust, have been super important since we started doing our research. But in the last three years, they've become more important. And so what that suggests is that not only, as you said, it's important for everyone, but this is becoming an even more powerful differentiator for high performers and high performing organizations. How do I build trust? The first thing is we talk a lot about trust in business. I do some work in the finance sector and trust is a topic that comes up a lot, a lot, and trust with customers who are in business, trust with investors. Sometimes people even talk about trust with employees, and sometimes they even talk about trusting their employees. But what they don't often talk about is that trust is actually an emotion. It's one of the basic emotions, and there are different researchers who define trust in different ways, but it's one of the basic human emotions. And it tells us it's a signal about safety. And as social animals, our safety is deeply entwined with our relationship with others. Do you have my back? If things go wrong here, am I going to be left out to dry? If the wolves come and start you know, attacking us, am I the one who's going to get pushed out the door? And ultimately, that basic survival is something we feel. So, Key point one, trust is a feeling. Key point two, trust is not something that's like, oh, that'd be nice if we had it. It's a primal foundational part of our kind of human ecology. How is that then feeding into the human energy crisis? What specifically then do you measure as you're calculating trust? We look at trust from the perspective of an individual leader's capacity to generate trust. And in the report that I mentioned, the vitality research we found an important connection between emotional intelligence and trust. 
and also an important connection specifically with optimism and the ability to drive change and trust. So we can come back to that. We measure it at a team level and we measure it at an organizational level. And by the way, we also do that with schools and, and universities. When we measure trust, we're looking at several dimensions, what we call pulse points, which are like the building blocks for trust. The fundamental frame that I would put on this from our book, The Vital Organization, is that we need to shift from demanding trust to earning trust. And back in the day, organizational leaders just said, well, look, we're the company, trust us. And now we're in a different place. And if you want to earn trust, the three ingredients are transparency, which is about showing up and letting people see more, not everything, but see more of what's really going on so that we're living in an era of increased transparency. And that when you're trying to obfuscate, they might not know what's going on, but they start guessing. And that lack of transparency leads people into a place of distrust. The second is coherence. Coherence is about the alignment between what you say and what you do. It's about putting your values into action, not just having them on the wall. It's about when you go in the room and say, you know what, people, I care about X. That's what they also see in the hall. If they see you in the grocery store and you've said, you know what, I really care about people no matter what their role is, and you're in line at the grocery store and you're chewing out some poor clerk who's like harried and overworked, like that's a lack of coherence. We could call it integrity. And then the last one is care. And this is a really big deal, and we don't talk about this at work very often. But I can tell you, as a leader, I remember in 2020 thinking that we might lose the organization, and I cried thinking about my people. You know, the idea that these people were giving so much to the work we were doing together and that I couldn't protect them, it broke my heart. It's harder to lead that way because that caring is a vulnerability. But if you do care, people feel it. They know it. They know it in their heart. They know it in their guts. And that shifts the relationship and it's mutual. We called our organization the Innovative Leadership Institute. And what you just said is so deeply resonates as why we call it that, because you and I may be around the same age and we were taught, at least I was taught, you don't show any vulnerability, especially as a woman. Yeah. And showing up and acting like you had feelings was absolutely a no-go because that just makes you a girl and girls are less competent. A lot of the trust formulas I've seen don't have care in them. Yeah. I think it's really important to expand our thinking around the importance of care. Who would not want to work for you as a leader who genuinely is heartbroken when you think about your employees having no consistent paycheck during a pandemic? I learned about this way back when I was a teacher. And we had a really unusual school that I was part of. It's actually the school where Dan Goleman came and visited when he was writing his book on emotional intelligence. And he described what we did there as one of the two models he'd found in the world of how you teach emotional intelligence. And that really led to the creation of the organization I lead, Six Seconds. But one of the things we did is we went and we took the kids up to a ropes course one year, the staff wasn't available, so we all got trained to lead the ropes course ourselves. And I was there literally tied to a chair, holding kids' lives in my hands on belay. And this is a moment of real test of trust. You know, and you've got this 12-year-old who's just so scared. And they're climbing up this 40-foot pole. And I learned so much about trust in that moment. And that piece about care was visceral. When I looked at them in the eye and said, I got you, I'm going to listen to you, I'm not going to push you, but I am going to support you, 
when you really want to stop, you can stop. But I'm, I'm not going to stop until you tell me I absolutely want to stop. And they'd be crying, like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I'd say, do you really want to stop? They'd say, no, I don't want to. I want to keep going. Again, I'm tied to a chair 40 feet away. But I could feel that connection. And that taught me so much about trust. I love the words feel the connection because we are wired to feel the energy of other people and not in a new age way, in a physiology way. But it also, I think, points to the importance of transparency and the freedom to say, I'm having a bad day. I feel a little bit off. That then creates the ability for people to make sense of what they're experiencing. Yeah. And now we take this to a global scale and we say, millions of people at work right this minute, if we really did a check-in and they were honest with us, they'd say, I'm not really okay. I'm suffering. I don't feel that motivated. I don't really know what I'm doing here. I don't actually feel that connection with my boss and my team. Interestingly, the research on virtual and hybrid work, people in a virtual workspace often feel as much trust and connection as people in person. It's a kind of myth that in-person solves this. It's really about the relationship and the skills that leaders have to foster that context. Reminds me of Project Aristotle at Google, where they said, we want to find out what makes a great team. And they tried, you know, rock star engineers. They tried people with super high grades, big achievers. None of it mattered. What mattered is what you learned in kindergarten. People who listen, people who make space for each other, people who help each other feel safe. In other words, trust. I just wrote an article for Forbes, and what you said confirms what I believe to be true. As we're looking at the AI evolution, revolution, whatever we call it, my question was, what do we as leaders need most as we move into this era? And I put those human leadership skills, collaboration, communication, inspiration, listening, being a caring human being, and then we move into technology skills and those things. Our lawyer for our organization, I recently asked him a question. He said, well, I asked ChatGPT, and here's, here's a template. So much expertise is now not that important. But these qualities that you just described of people-centered leadership or vital leadership, those are rooted in emotions. We feel them. Those feelings move us. They transform us. They shape us. They bring us together or push us apart. They spark innovation. They spark connection. They help us understand each other, our customers, our various stakeholders, even our investors. If we don't grow those, the AI is coming for our jobs. You've done a lot of work with creating a series of business cases. You've done a lot of research. Can you give us the quick rundown? I think you said earlier, 22 times more profitable. Is that companies who are scoring at a certain level? <laughs> if I run a company and I'm thinking okay, this EQ stuff, 22 times more successful. But if I called Joshua, I wouldn't even know what to ask for. Right. What am I looking for? In the business case, we lay this out as a kind of value chain. When I work with organizational leaders, I always start at the end of the chain and I say, okay, let's talk about what is the value you're trying to create? What does it mean if you're successful? Is it increased sales? Is it more accounts? Is it more time with your product? Is it a higher percentage of people coming to your hospital leave healthy? Like, what's the value creation? Then let's back up one step from that and say, for your customers, clients, patients, students, whatever they are, what is it that they need to experience that will contribute to that value creation? And we can make a list of it. 
Interestingly, trust is almost always on that list when I ask them. Sometimes, you know, reliability or safety. But there's this other kind of emotional energy, we might call it delight, the sense like, oh, this is even better than getting my basic needs met. So then we can back up a step from there and say, okay, how is that emotional experience for customers delivered? So we have essentially the emotional brand. How is that emotional brand delivered? And in part, it's through your products and systems and you have a cool website and and whatever. But at the end of the day, you can have all the bells and whistles. And because emotions are primal in our brain, the human experience is what is ultimately going to shape that customer experience, which is ultimately going to shape that value creation. And then we back up two more steps. Okay, what has to happen in your teams? Ultimately, what has to happen in you as senior leaders? That's a kind of emotional value chain where we go from the senior leaders to the teams, to the culture we're trying to create, to the customer experience, to the value creation. And when we map that out, we come right back to the beginning. What do senior leaders need in order to work that chain? What I've heard a hundred times is things like better relationships, really setting the right tone, having people feel connected, feel a sense of community and belonging, feel, 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 feel. Well, what are the skills that are going to do that? It's emotional intelligence. We've made some changes to our organization. And the reason I bring that up is your model has trust in the middle but it has things that I wouldn't necessarily have expected, like strategy. You've got people, which makes sense, organization and direction. It feels it feels like a more robust model than some of the other EQ assessments I've taken. And you've got leader, team and organization. So it's a whole system. It's not I go buy some EQ book and take a self-assessment and give the same book to all my people and we take the self-assessment and then we, you know, look up the top two things we're not doing well and we're all good to go. I have that book on the shelf as well. <laughs> I do hear two somewhere, but I'm not so, certified in their stuff. I'm certified in your stuff. The model that you're talking about, mm-hmm. trust is at the middle and these drivers that we found, and this was fascinating, Maureen, We did a decade of research. We didn't start with this model. We didn't say, oh, we think trust matters. We were working with a whole variety of organizations, and I was participating in a large-scale organizational change process. My boss, the president of Six Seconds, and I, her name is Annabelle Jensen, we went to this meeting, and we walked out of the meeting with the senior leaders, and she said to me, people don't feel heard. So we decided we would do a survey and a structured interview process to really work on people feeling heard. It worked so well that we then did it again and again, and then trained other people to do it and did it again and again and again. A decade later, this model emerged. So this is from the wild. This is real data, real organizations in 10 countries. What differentiates high-performing organizations and teams and leaders? And trust at the center comes from the map. Trust is part of motivation. It's part of readiness to change. It's part of teamwork. And it's also part of execution. And when we start to say, okay, what should I prioritize? And you say to me, okay, these are the three things we really need to get done this month. If I don't trust you, I'm not going to really buy into those things. And so I'm not going to prioritize them. I'm not going to execute on the right stuff and we're not going to be aligned. I'm going to go back to the four around trust. Motivation, which makes sense. We're talking about energy crisis. 
willingness and ability to change, teamwork and execution. And so again, you are very concretely tying things like execution, delivering results and impact for our clients to EQ. Yeah. We have another set of assessments on individual emotional intelligence. These tools that we're talking about, are we call them the vital signs. You go into the hospital, they don't throw you in an fMRI right away, right? They go, huh, let's take your vital signs and get a quick check. And so this very rapidly, you get a quick check on where you are on these key areas of organizational vitality, the kind of emotional intelligence metrics for organizations. And then we can say, well, how do you work on these? And if you want to work on any one of these, there's some practical stuff and there's some emotional stuff. So again, let's just stick with execution because that's one that people are like, well, that's not, not emotional intelligence. Well, in execution, we might work on our decision-making matrix. We might work on our communication flow. We might work on how we carry organizational knowledge. Are people using those systems? Why or why not? Are people putting in the priority? Are they giving each other feedback? Why are we not? The answers to those why or why nots is, again, emotional and rooted in that trust. So we have to get good at the emotional side of this. This is what's wrong with you know, TQM and Six Sigma and process re-engineering and all these systematic approaches to organizational transformation that have incredible value and that have brilliance in them, but they kind of stuff people off on the side. And they say, our systems will drive change, but people aren't driven by systems. People are driven by emotions. We've got to get the human piece at the center if we want any of those methodologies to work. Let me restate and correct me if I'm missing it, because I think many leaders are facing some kind of change. Often we as leaders look to our consultants to help implement, if I could just put a computer in and fix all this stuff, that'd be great because you know, they don't have feelings. <laughs> you have your FOMO, right? So, I know. We'll she just hire her. <laughs> she does what she's told. Well, my team, yeah, my team tells her what to do and she does it. But outside of that, in the practical world, it sounds like I still need those things and I need to help the humans. This is the old change management. But often that's also systemically focused not actual human focused. Let me give you the training to make sure you do what I want you to do. I'll write a communication plan and give you the communication bits you're supposed to get. It in some cases is not entirely about the humans. It's about the systems to deliver the change. Yeah. You're saying, yes, we need that. We certainly need to train and stuff. And we need our human leaders to have this capacity or our human workers aren't going to be able to make the kinds of changes we need them to make. Yeah. And we can just go back to engagement. And again, this human energy. I said before, Gallup, new workplace engagement report globally, lowest scores in 20 years. Why aren't people engaged? It's not because they don't have a ping pong table at the office. Those are things. And things are not the same as relationships. Things are not the same as emotions. And as leaders, we have to understand what actually creates engagement. One of our fascinating case studies was with a poultry company in Europe, a major supplier to McDonald's. This is a very old school business. You know, they grow and slaughter chickens. Even in this old school kind of workplace environment, we found that plants that had higher levels of managerial emotional intelligence, the managers 
had higher performance scores. The plants had higher employee engagement scores. In fact, 70% of the variation in plant-level engagement was predicted by the manager's emotional intelligence. That's basically what that means is if your managers don't have emotional intelligence, you don't have engagement. And that brings us back to 21% in the U.S. engagement and the lowest level of emotional intelligence since we started doing our research. I'm a leader of an organization. I hear these stats. I assume that my organization is not so exceptional that we have no issues. I hope that we're a little better than the data you've just talked about, but I'm not convinced. What do I do about it? Because if I'm that leader, I'm worried. Yeah, I really hope you are. Because if you're like, oh, okay, well, let's just go about business as usual. That is just dumb at this point. <laughs> it's, let alone emotional intelligence, just plain old intelligence. I think it was Drucker said, you know, what got us here will not get us there. What got you here will not get you there. And it is time for some infusing some new capacities. In this business case that I'm happy to share the link in the notes, we lay out what we found through two decades of research on, on this in organizations. What doesn't work is, hey, HR, let's do a training on emotional intelligence. I can't tell you how many organizational leaders I've talked to have said, yeah, I think we did emotional intelligence a couple of years ago. Oh, really? What do you mean? We spent a whole day on it as if that's somehow like this impressive thing. The four steps start with Number one, leaders go first. And what I mean by that, it's partly the work you and I do on leadership development and how we support leaders to strengthen themselves. But it's also about this conversation we've been having. Do you really get that these emotional dynamics are foundational to your business performance? Can you sit around the table with your fellow senior leaders and say, look, we have an emotional problem and it's costing us money. And everybody in the room nods their head and goes, yes, that is absolutely true. This is an essential. And I will tell you, there are so few senior leadership rooms that I've been in where everybody around the room nodded their head. So there's usually one or two. And then there's somebody, you know, crossing their arms like, ah, this emotional stuff. We just, you know, we need to get blah, 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 blah. And then they start getting all emotional. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Leaders go first means we need the business case really clear for our organization that value chain I talked about, what is the culture that's actually going to make the difference in your context, in your place, in your sector, in your space, in your value creation model? And if you can really be clear on that, then you're going to prioritize this in a way that's going to help you do the next steps. I love that. So again, back to the holistic, it's not we did EQ or we did DEI and it was a one day thing. And I don't know why you people aren't now diverse or emotionally aware. My blood pressure just went up, Maureen. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Let's bring it back down. Optimism, optimism. Yeah. This is the great news is we've seen this works. Yeah. You've seen it. I've seen it. We have data about it. All kinds of organizations, big organizations. We did a huge project at FedEx. And when they increased their emotional intelligence, their results improved. We've done it in tech. We've done it in manufacturing. We've done it in healthcare, financial services, education, government. Families, we see this correlation over and over. These are learnable, measurable, scientifically grounded skills that are correlated with organizational and individual success. So it works. We can do it. Well, I want to add to that. It is not uncommon when I've coached an executive and then I meet their spouse, that their spouse will also say, thank you. 
he or she is so much better. And part of it is this moving from either I don't have emotions or I don't need emotions or I can just set them to the side to being able to name them. That's a big step. But then the power that harnessing emotions gives me is significant, especially with your spouse or significant other. And if you have them, children, your children need your emotions to be clean. Yeah. Emotions come out one way or another. I remember in one of our books, the Inside Change book, Chip Conley wrote the introduction and, and Chip talked about being the thermostat, you know, the chief emotions officer, CEO, and like you set the emotional tone. You're doing that whether you are intending to or not. You know, that emotional tone is coming out and everybody knows. And is this like, oh, we got to walk on eggshells around so-and-so today. People know it. People feel it. It's affecting them. You can pretend it's not there, but it is there. And if you want to be rational, business leaders, like, well, we have to be rational about it. Okay, let's be rational. Our brains are driven by emotions. It's a foundational part of our neurobiology. And if we don't get intentional and clear about that, we're missing an opportunity. The parallel that comes to mind at this moment is there is a contagious nature in this. So we've just come out of a pandemic to prevent us from getting sick or sicker or impacting others, we managed our health. When I have a cough, I don't get on an airplane now. Just general hygiene. We don't think about the general hygiene of emotional management. When I'm having a difficult day, it is my responsibility not to go yell at my team right. or to let people know I'm feeling a little rough right now. A couple of days ago, I got word from a very dear friend that she has stage four cancer. Mm. It was a tough day. Yeah. Those days, I will often let people know when you do the typical, how are you doing at the beginning of a conversation where mostly people think you're going to say fine and hope you don't go into any detail, that that's the time to say, I'm having a tough day because I got some challenging news. And there's transparency, mm -hmm. but also there's care because you made a decision to share that with me, that vulnerability to go against the social norm of fine. You're being courageous and taking a risk and taking a risk on me. And I feel that. And now I've learned something about how you see me. I care about our relationship. Yeah. I care that our interaction is as constructive as possible. And today it may, you're not going to get the normal Maureen. You're going to get a sad Maureen. Yeah. And it's not me. I'm not the one who's making you sad. And I mean, different people make different kinds of assumptions. For me, I always blame myself. So like if I get out of a conversation with you and I'm like, wow, I really, I didn't do a good job communicating with Maureen. I could tell there was something really wrong. I must have really messed up. Right. And somebody else might just be blaming you, but <laughs> like we're going to make these assumptions in the absence of sharing the data. Mm -hmm. And that contagion then goes to everyone that person touches. Yes. Because you feel like we've had a bad interaction. And if it's bad enough, it's going to impact you. Yeah. And then you're going to go and potentially impact someone else if you're unaware. Yeah. And that germ carries on and then goes home to your family. Absolutely. I remember when my kids were little, I would sit in the driveway for a few minutes some days. They're like, I need to walk in that door as their daddy not as a stressed out CEO. Mm -hmm. This emotional contagion, again, there's a ton of research about it. 
I think before 2020, most of us, when we said, let's go viral, we didn't quite understand it in the same way that we do now. But emotions, they're affecting us whether or not we're conscious of them. They change our motivation. They change our decisions. They change the way we interact. They change the way we evaluate information. And this comes back to the optimism word you were using. When people feel pessimistic, they will appraise data in a different way. And they will be more critical and less open to possibilities. So if somebody's in this kind of emotional state of pessimism and you say, look, I have an idea, I think it'll work, they will be much more likely to go, well, let me tell you all the reasons why it won't. That's not conscious, but it's, it's an automatic, almost instantaneous reaction and it spreads. How do we promote the optimism? I happen to have the really good fortune of being around a couple people who wake up optimistic. Yeah. I don't wake up angry, but I may wake up a little more risk management y. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times when people hear the word optimism, if they've come from sort of the orientation of risk management y, uh, they hear the word optimism as unrealistic, pie in the sky, rose-colored glasses, Pollyanna. By the way, the character of Pollyanna, she was incredibly scrappy, you know, and she like dealt with some terrible stuff and was like resilient and I'm going to keep going and persevering through adversity. So I don't know why the term Pollyanna got such a bad rap, but optimism does not have to be unrealistic. I really like in the book, Good to Great, they talked about the Stockdale paradox. Admiral Jim Stockdale was the senior U.S. prisoner of war in Vietnam. And Stockdale said, the people who said, hey, we're going to get out of here by Christmas, they died. People who said, we're never going to get out of here, they died. And what Stockdale said is, you need to confront the brutal facts of your reality, no matter how awful, while retaining faith that you'll prevail. So for me, optimism is not hey, everything's fine. That's denial. That's a totally different thing. And it goes against trust, right? So optimism that builds trust is going to be brutally honest. And I do not know how the heck we're going to get out of this mess. Our businesses, our communities, our world right now, it is in a difficult spot. It's a shit show. <laughs> it is a shit show. And so many places and spaces, people are just barely holding on. I do not know how we're going to solve all of that. And I believe in our potential. I believe in human capacity. I believe that there is somewhere a way for us to make it better. I don't need to have the answer, but that sense, that feeling of possibility, it opens up my energy to say, okay, well, let's try. To amplify what you just said, it's interesting that we are at such a tipping point in so many fields across the world that we're finding significant medical solutions. Some of the AI work and machine learning will solve problems that we never could have solved previously. We may deal with a lot of our climate-related issues through the science and the computing power. It seems that we are positioned for positive outcomes and negative outcomes. And to your point, there is certainly a scenario, even from risk management woman, that the outcomes can be incredibly positive and it requires everyone being their best and most emotionally intelligent self for us to get there. Because if I'm shut down and you're shut down and Dan, our producer, is shut down, this is going to be a terrible show. And every other show, whether I'm in my office, not on a podcast, those performances at work 
will also be suboptimal. Absolutely. It's about, again, unleashing that capacity. It's there. It's there in us. It's there in our people. We have a new situation with some new threats and some new barriers. And so we're going to need some new skills. We're going to need to double down on growing the capacity to navigate this kind of chaos and pretending that it doesn't exist, pretending that we can just keep doing what we did before. That's not going to solve it. We're going to have to grow. The interesting challenge is growth is uncomfortable, requires letting go. I was just working with the senior management team on this. Their business is growing. They're doing fantastic work in their organization. They've basically doubled in the last couple of years, despite all the stuff going on. And now they're kind of growing themselves out of their old jobs that they were good at. And this whole senior leadership team and the CEO, they're all like, wait, I was really good at what we did two years ago. And now I have to kind of give that up and do something new. That moment of confronting growth, it's beautiful, but it is also, there's some grief in it and there's some uncertainty in it. Maureen, I don't know about you, but I sure have experienced this a lot of times in the last three years. I'm like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can grow in the way I need to, to serve my organization and my mission and my people and the world that we're trying to support. I don't know if I can do that. That's part of why we're writing this book about innovative leadership leading a hybrid workforce, so humans and AIs, my little FOMO. (laughs) We're experimenting and trying to learn because I think we have to. And if I'm in the space of helping leaders evolve, I need to understand what evolution is and I need to evolve. That means I'm going to be doing some things that are way outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. Hopefully I'm up for the task. I think I am. There'll be days I won't think I am. (laughs) That's where the tenacity comes in and grit and all that stuff. I think if for most leaders, if we're awake and aware, we're worried. And these years now of uncertainty, it drags at us and our batteries are depleted. So it's not just, you know, the workforce where we have this human energy crisis. It's investors, it's innovators, it's C-level leaders, it's everybody. On average, (laughs) we take the average of everybody in the organization, everybody in the city you live, everybody who's listening to this podcast, our average kind of energy capacity is less right now than it was three years ago. While the challenges that we're grappling with are bigger on average than they were three years ago. And so that's the dichotomy that we're in. And the bad news is that hurts and it kind of sucks. The good news is there are tools that we know from scads of research will help you get through that and grow and get to the next level. You and I are both humans doing this work. How do you stay energized and optimistic? I've heard optimism in our conversations and I have consistently in all of our conversations I know you work long hours because you respond to my emails late at night immediately. So you're on the computer. So it's not that you work four hours a day. And it's really easy probably to be optimistic when you don't have to work much. You've said you had fears during the pandemic of not getting to keep all your people. So I'm saying that to say most of our listeners are maybe saying, well, their lives different than mine. We both work late. We both worry about money and our people. We both want to make a big impact in the world and we see things that worry us. How do you stay optimistic? Because you can't do what you do and coach executives if you show up as a a mess. 
I'm glad you brought that up. It really disturbs me when I hear this sort of narrative of like, oh, I struggled and then I figured it out and now everything's great. I'm like, huh, that didn't happen for me. I've been leading an organization for 25 years. Did I do something wrong? <laughs> there are days where I am just so wrung out. And what I have found is I needed to learn some new ways. Again, the last three years, next level. It's like, you know, when you're playing a video game and you like level up and you're like, hey, I can't beat this monster anymore. I need to get better at it. I've had to level up. I've had to level up in learning how to rest better. I bought an e-bike. I'm in my 50s and not in great physical condition. And riding an e-bike was really fun for me. And I found that really rejuvenating. And it's actually one of my employees who recommended that to me. I spend time just sitting outside uh, watching the bees. I find that really nourishing. If we stopped keeping bees for a little while and then a hive just appeared and my son just uh, boxed up the new hive and so I've been watching them and they're just, they don't care. They don't care about you know pandemics or economic crisis or they're just going about their business and fully committed to what they're doing. I think for me, the biggest piece is about reconnecting with purpose. And one of the questions early in the pandemic, one of my colleagues said to me, you remember how Annabelle Jensen, our president, said, when there's a medical crisis, the Red Cross shows up. And when there's an emotional crisis, we, as six seconds, this is our work, we need to show up. What do you want to show up as? When we look back at this in five years, how do we want to remember ourselves? And that question for me was a huge lever to shift myself. And I find in general, that sense of connecting to purpose, it's not enough to kind of know purpose and the same thing with an organization. It's not enough to know what your strategy is. You have to feel it. Your people have to feel it. When you can feel that connection, this is something that is really worth digging in for. You know, people will do incredible things for something they really care about. And I really care about the state of the future and the human being's and how we treat each other. And so when I think about like, wow, this is a moment to step up because people really need this now, that's deeply motivating. What a beautiful answer. Similar to you, I think leaders are a key lever in how we go forward, be it political or corporate or community <laughs> or, or family. Uh, all of them have a very important role and offering good models if we step back and say half of the country is one political party and roughly half is the other, roughly half thought the last guy was good, roughly half think this guy is good, or you don't like either one, but that's separate. <laughs> so we don't have shared models about what good leadership looks like in many cases. The behaviors that worked even three years ago, the leaders who were exceptional, some of those leaders aren't doing so well right now. How do we help them recalibrate with new mental models and frameworks? So that's our purpose. So I'm hearing two things there. One is about line of sight. Can we see how our work today is impacting that larger sense of purpose? And I'm afraid for a lot of people and organizations, it's blurry at best. But if we can help clarify, why does this matter? Why does this thing that you're doing today matter? Why does producing this podcast well matter? If people can see that and feel that, that's crucial. And then the other is shifting, intentionally designing our culture to adapt to the current context. And again, 
U.S. Surgeon General's framework for mental health and well-being in the workplace, workplace mental health and well-being, is a fantastic framework. It doesn't really say how. And so we stepped back and said, okay, well, how do people actually do this? And we identified 10 practical emotional intelligence tools, and we have a little course about it now, of how as a manager do you shift the way you interact so that it supports your own well-being, your employee well-being, and both of those in the service of performance. And I think sometimes people think about well-being and performance as somehow posing, and it's because they think, well, well-being means take time off. And interestingly, the research on burnout, it's not really tied to overwork. Burnout is tied to emotional needs not being met, people not feeling connected, people not feeling appreciated, people not feeling that sense of purpose in their work, people not feeling the sense of autonomy that they can grow and strengthen. And these are, again, emotional drivers. In order to understand and manage the emotional drivers, we need to be more intelligent in that domain, and we can learn to do that. I love the idea of being more intelligent in that domain. We think about IQ and how I manage, how smart I am. <laughs> and I realize it's in the word emotional intelligence, but I don't think we think deeply about what does that mean and that it is as important and a bigger differentiator, all things being equal, you and I have the same IQ. If you are more emotionally intelligent, significantly more, your probability of success goes up by a lot. It's like 80% or something. It's big. Yeah. So EQ scores are twice as good a predictor of a workplace performance than IQ. Now, I want to just give a caveat. I don't think emotional intelligence is always more important than intellectual intelligence. I live near Silicon Valley, so let's just imagine a software company and they're choosing between candidates. All of their candidates have pretty good IQ. Mm -hmm. Nobody's applying to be a software engineer if they don't have some at least basic acumen in the technology. So they have this candidate pool that all has the baseline. Now, from that baseline, who is going to become a great engineer? Who's going to become a great team leader? Who's going to become somebody who fosters innovation and lifts not just their own performance, but their whole group's performance? That person has some extra mojo. And that mojo we can measure and quantify as emotional intelligence or EQ. Let's wrap up on that, that that mojo is twice as important as IQ. And it drives business performance. So if I'm a CEO who says, should I invest our economic resources and our team's time in building EQ? Because we're faced with, we've got X money and all kinds of projects. This is a project with an ROI. It impacts customer experience, employee experience, mental health, physical health. I would go so far as to say it's actually not even an investment. It's how you stop the bleeding. Sometimes organizational leaders will think, we got a lot of crisis going on right now. I can't invest in my people today. And I get that. I experienced that myself as a leader. There are limited resources. And if you are bleeding talent, if you are having a fifth of your employees fully productive, if you're not communicating, if you're not solving the right problems, you are bleeding this human energy. And it's like, let's get you some stitches Let's get you some, something to stop that bleeding, and that's going to be growing emotional intelligence. It's a lifesaver for organizations in the current level of crisis. On that note, Josh, how would people reach you in six seconds? 
sixseconds.org is the website. And I'll just put in a plug that we have tons of case studies and articles. I've been doing this for 25 years. So we have this massive collection of resources that are available there for workplaces, schools, families, selves, everybody. And then I'm active on LinkedIn. So that's a great way to get in touch with me. Really any social media, you can find Six Seconds there and we'd be really happy to connect with you. And just so listeners know, it's the number six and then secondspilledout.org, right? Yes. Although okay. we also bought <laughs> the letter six and dot com. Okay. So they all steer you back to the All roads web. lead to Rome. Beautiful and wise. So thank you, Josh. You've given me more optimism for our future. This has been Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm Maureen Metcalf. Listeners, we trust Josh's insights will help you become more future ready. Thank you for joining us and please like and share this podcast so others can benefit from Josh's wisdom. Mm -hmm.